0: Good morning, everyone. Congratulations, making it out to church on such a beautiful sunny day. And we'll pray for the souls of all of those who are out on the golf course. Let's bow our hearts in prayer. Father, thank you for this opportunity. One that we often take for granted. But Lord, this morning we remind our souls this is nothing to be taken lightly. This opportunity to gather together. To be encouraged in fellowship and in prayer. To taste and see that the Lord is good. To have our hearts realigned and recalibrated around the truth of your word. God, we remind our souls that you have spoken and that what we have in the Bible is God's word written. We ask and pray that it would indeed today be a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So as George has read, we are going to look at Matthew chapter 28. You can turn there in your Bible if you're not there yet. Specifically verses 16 to 20, Matthew 28 verses 16 to 20. I was considering over the last little while, what are some of the reasons why I am a Christian man? Perhaps you've thought the same thing, or you thought, why are the reasons why I'm a Christian woman? And I thought, my, my reasons for being a Christian man fall into a couple of different categories. The first one is that from one perspective, I was born into a dominantly culturally Christian nation here in Canada. I was born into a Christian family with a godly mom and dad. You know, there's something to be said for how the gospel works in different generations and creates gospel goodness throughout children and children's children, and and that's definitely a covenant and a legacy that goes on. But in fact, the biblical answer is that I am a Christian man because God chose me from before the foundation of the world. That's from one perspective. But from the perspective of my lived experience, why am I a Christian man? Well, I believe so because... I find Christianity to be, as Tim Keller said, both rationally plausible and existentially satisfying. You know what I mean by that? In the first case, our Christian faith is rationally plausible. When we talk about Christianity and we talk about its its foundation that it creates for a worldview... We believe that the gospel has within itself an internal logic that it holds together to rational scrutiny. There are logical structures that are built around the different tenets of Christian faith. Now, in fact, if you are a Christian, you'll know that you truly have to be born again before that rational framework fully makes sense. But this rational framework that is plausible of Christianity. It results in a worldview, and this is another reason why I find myself to be a Christian man. It's, it's, it's rationally plausible, because when I look at the outworkings of a Christian worldview, I see the Western world over the last couple hundred years, and although not perfect, it is the best that the world in human history has ever produced, simply by following the commandments of God, even a little bit. It's not a perfect Western world, but it's incrementally trying to get better as we press more and more into God's Word, and as we depart further and further away from God's Word, we find that our society is going up on the rocks, Um, which again, to me, just furthers my commitment to Christianity because it's rationally plausible. You can see that it makes sense. It's also existentially satisfying Do you know what I mean by existentially satisfying? It means that Christian faith not only speaks to the head, but it also speaks to the heart. I'm a Christian man because in my Christian faith, I find the deepest issues of my existence addressed. Why am I here? Is there a purpose to life? Is there a purpose to suffering when it befalls me or someone whom I love? What is the pathway to a good life? What lies beyond the grave? You see, I'm a Christian man because it's rationally plausible, but also because it's existentially satisfying to press into the promises of God and find answers to these deeper questions of my existence. So far, those are some of the reasons why I'm a Christian man. You know, God's choosing rationally plausible, existentially satisfying. But this time of year, I'm reminded of perhaps the core reason why I'm a Christian man. It's because Jesus was raised from the dead. You know, if you're a Christian this morning, have you ever thought about it in those terms? It's truly this one remarkable fact that delineates and separates you from the rest of the world. You know that Jesus Christ is no longer decaying in a grave, but God raised him to new life on the third day. This is what makes you a Christian person by virtue of believing this, having been granted the gift of faith from God. You believe that God raised Jesus from the dead on that first Easter Sunday, and That all of the claims that Jesus then made throughout his earthly ministry are now vindicated. God raised him from the dead. You believe that. You're a Christian. If you have never read through an entire gospel in the Bible in one sitting, let me strongly encourage that you do it. Or maybe two sittings. And look very closely at the claims of Jesus. Look at them without Sunday school goggles on. Okay, look at the claims as though you're reading them for the very first time. And as you read them, you will realize what C.S. Lewis called his trilemma. It is not possible to read the claims of Jesus and merely conclude that he was a good man or a teacher. When you take the claims that he made during his earthly life seriously, you have only three options set before you he was either a liar, a lunatic, or he is Lord. Apart from his resurrection from the dead, any one of those three could be possible, but it is the fact that Jesus is alive that vindicates all of those claims and shows that he is Lord. See, that's why I'm a Christian man. I believe in the resurrection. That Jesus, on the third day, was raised and that he appeared. And so what we're going to do over the next couple of weeks is spend Sunday sermon time Looking at resurrection appearances. This morning we're starting in Matthew, and in a couple of weeks we're going to look through Luke. And we're working toward then, we're going to keep going through the resurrection appearances of Jesus at the end of Matthew and Luke, and we're going to go right over into a sermon series through the book of Acts that will probably take us until Jesus returns. But there are a few notes that I wanted to set out there before we look at Matthew and these resurrection appearances, just to clarify some things. The first one is that as we move through these, because we're moving between Matthew and Luke, you're going to find that they're not necessarily in chronological order, because we're moving between different Gospels. It's worth reminding yourself that when you read Gospels, you know, what are you reading? You are reading the Holy Spirit having moved men to write these accounts of Jesus— to a particular audience by picking and choosing which moments and which accounts in Jesus' life they're going to record. There is no gospel writer who claims to record everything that Jesus said and did. In fact, John, at the end of his gospel, said, if we were to write down everything that Jesus said and did, he's like, not even the skies could hold the scrolls. And so when we're moving through these gospel accounts, you're going to notice that there are sort of differences in chronology and some different events that are recorded in some and not in others. And that's okay. That's how the Holy Spirit inspired these accounts to be recorded. These gospel accounts were written for two purposes. The first is to lead people to faith in Jesus Christ. The second one is, is to encourage people to remain faithful in the face of persecution. And so over these couple of weeks, as we start moving towards the accounts in Acts, we're moving through these resurrection appearances and we're building a composite. We're taking little bits from Matthew and little bits from Luke and little bits from and, and all over the place and building this composite picture of what transpired over those 50 days between Jesus and rising from the dead, and him ascending into heaven. Are you with me so far? That's what we're doing. So today, Matthew 28, verses 16 to 20. Well, the very first thing that Matthew does in the, chap- in the verses leading up to this is he clears up some misconceptions. He dispels rumors and error that were floating around back then, and some of them still linger today. Look back in your Bibles, actually, at Matthew 28, just a few verses up, verses uh, 16, sorry, verses 11 to 15. Matthew 28, verses 11 to 15. So they've already, the disciples have encountered the empty tomb. The Lord Jesus Christ, in verse 10, said to them, Do not be afraid. Go tell my brothers to go to Galilee. There they will see me. Verse 11. While they were going, behold, some of the guard went into the city and told the chief priests all that had taken place. And when they had assembled with the leaders and taken counsel, they gave a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers and said, Tell the people his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. And if this comes to the governor's ears, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So they took the money and did as they were directed. And this story, this story, this untrue story, has been spread among the Jews to this day. You see, Matthew, when it comes to these resurrection appearances, was very concerned to begin by dispelling myth and pushing back on lies. He calls them out. The first one that he addresses in these verses 11 to 15 is that there was some kind of pious ruse undertaken. That's what he's saying. It's a, it's a saying that Matthew's saying that was a story that was floating around, and it's not true. So he records that actually this story began with people who were opposed to Jesus and his disciples. They paid other people off and said, go around telling everyone that his disciples, he wasn't truly raised from the dead, that his disciples actually just went and stole his body away from the grave. Another misconception that we'll see debunked is that Jesus was not truly raised from the dead, but he was merely a figment of the imagination of his disciples. I suspect very few in this room have ever heard of a scholar named Gerd Ludemann. Raise your hand if you've read Gerd Ludemann. Good, he's terrible. He is a 20th century German so-called Bible scholar, and he claimed that Jesus Christ was not, in fact, bodily raised from the dead. What he said was that Jesus' disciples were under such great and horrific psychological trauma and distress that their minds fabricated these visions and these appearances like a dream. That's what Gerd Ludemann said. That's another myth. This idea of Jesus was not truly raised. His body was stolen from the grave. Jesus was not truly raised. It was just wishful thinking on the part of his friends. Was the Jesus that appears in these different resurrection accounts, was he a ghost was he just a spirit? Another one. It's made popular by, in Islam these days. Islam believes that Jesus was not raised from the dead because on the cross he did not in fact die. He merely swooned. And then he was put in the ground, you know, put on the bench, caught a breather, and put back out in the game. That's, that's how that myth goes. Now, as we move through these resurrection accounts, one by one, you'll see that the answer in the Bible to each of them is no. He was not stolen. He was raised. He really died. We're told that water and blood poured from the side of his thorax. If Jesus on the cross did not truly die, then the Roman killing machine, man, they hit their first speed bump because they were really good at killing people on crosses. Was he a spirit? Was he a ghost? No. We're told in the gospel accounts that he appeared and said to Thomas, Here, check it out, bud. Look at my hands. Look at my feet. Poke your fingers in them. See if it's not real. See if it's not me. He will sit with his friends by a bonfire and eat broiled fish in a couple of weeks. He was truly raised from the dead in a body and appeared to his disciples over the course of 50 days. Well, that's the point that Matthew begins with in verse 16. Now, the 11 disciples went to Galilee. Notice first that Matthew doesn't leave it vague he tells his audience that these were real people, that the real resurrected bodily Jesus really appeared to. It's the 11, not the 12. Remember the fate of Judas. These 11 went to a very particular place that Matthew also named. Where did they go? To Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. Now, I don't know about you, but when I read the gospel accounts and they include things like specific names and specific names of places and different things that you can verify, it lends credibility to the account. And at the very least, we can say, Matthew is trying to be perfectly clear. This really happened. A real, resurrected, raised from the dead, in a body, Jesus Christ, appearing to real men, disciples, on a real mountain in Galilee. Verse 17. They saw him. didn't say they saw a phantom or a ghost that looked like him. These were guys who had just spent the last couple of years with him all the time. They saw him, and they knew that it was him. And what was their response? Well, there were two different responses on that day, weren't there? Verse 17, and when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Some doubted. These same two categories exist for all of us today. When we are confronted with the risen Jesus, we will worship him, or we will doubt. A couple of things I want you to note from this. The first is, if you are here this morning, and you'd say to me, R.D., I am a Christian man or woman... Or maybe you'd even put a little caveat on it and say, I sure hope that I'm a Christian man or woman. I sure would like to be a Christian man or woman. And you'd say, but I'm struggling with doubts. I have doubts that plague me. Doubts around the resurrection. Doubts around the miraculous. Doubts around the gospel at times. Look at this passage and be encouraged. The men who doubted on that day, were numbered among the 11 disciples. What does that mean for you? It means that sometimes we think that we need to eradicate all questions. We need to get rid of all doubt before we can be baptized, before we can receive the Lord's Supper, before we can genuinely call ourselves a Christian. We think we have to stamp it all out. And so anytime we see even a little bit of doubt, you know, you start to spiral out of control with your faith. And it compounds. Well, Scripture teaches us that God is so merciful and so kind that a bruised reed he will not snap and a smoldering wick he will not put out. It means that if you have doubts, but you have even just the smallest flicker of a flame of faith in the resurrected Jesus, he counts you among his disciples. You know, there are two different types of doubt and questioning. You've probably encountered this when you've tried to talk to non-Christian believers, uh, non-Christian friends. You will you'll talk to them and they'll raise their questions or their doubts, but their questions and their doubts are disingenuous. They're not for the purpose of trying to figure something out or get to the bottom of truth. They use the questions and the doubts as like um, stiff arms to hold you and to hold the gospel away. That's one type of doubt and questioning. The fact of the matter is for everyone who's ever called themselves a disciple, we all have lingering questions and doubts. But that's the second category. That is faith-seeking understanding. That is taking those questions and those doubts, and instead of using them to hold Jesus at arm's length, allowing those questions and doubts, bringing them to him, taking them to him as the risen Savior, Bring your doubts to Jesus this morning. Stop using them as an excuse to hold you away. That's the first thing. Second thing, first group, they, they doubted. The second thing that happened was they worshipped him. They worshipped him. Look, this is a point that would not have been lost on the original audience. There is no one to be worshipped except for the Lord God. And so in this moment, the resurrected Jesus appears to the eleven. Some doubted, but they worshipped him. And in doing so, they were declaring, Jesus of Nazareth is God incarnate. The resurrected Jesus Christ, and they worship him. This... Popular thought that's been going around for some time that the deity of Jesus was something that was foisted onto Christianity sometime around the 3rd century. That's a load of bunk. The very guys who hung out with him, they saw him resurrected, they bowed before him and worshipped him, and Jesus didn't tell them to stop. He never rebuked them. In fact, he doubled down on it. He said, all authority has been given to me. Let's move forward, verse 18. And Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. So Jesus, who has been raised from the dead, he's conquered the grave, he's charging them with a task, It is this task empowered by the coming Holy Spirit that will galvanize this ragtag group of guys that will move them from being these like apparently at times dim-witted, slow-to-understand disciples into a band of apostles who go out and literally change the course of human history this charge, this commission that Jesus sets before them begins with something that they've already come to know because they worshiped him, so they had to know that Jesus has been given all authority in heaven and on earth. See, the resurrected Jesus stands before these men and he doesn't say, look, guys, um, I know I was dead Um, I know I was in the grave for three days. I know that I was raised to new life. And I kind of got this new lease on life. Hey, guys, there's this new thing I want to try. No, no, he comes fully loaded. They're worshiping him as God. And he says, you're worshiping me as God and you do so rightly because all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, the risen Jesus. It's a comprehensive statement. There is no place beyond the authority of the risen Jesus Christ. For the philosophers in the group, there's also no non-place beyond the authority of the risen Jesus Christ. Everything in the created order and beyond, in time, space, and in eternity, is under the authority of this risen Jesus Christ. Who appeared in a body to the eleven in Galilee. It's with this comprehensive authority that he commissions them. This comprehensive authority that Jesus sets out when he commissions them means at least these two things. First of all, it means that this commission he's about to set out comes to them. With the power and the weight of the Lord of everything. The task will be great, but the Lord Jesus Christ is greater than the task. The second thing it means is that for these 11 and for all disciples throughout the ages, the Great Commission is not optional. Will this task be fruitful? The answer is yes. Jesus has all authority in heaven and earth. Should I participate in this task? Should I take this great commission on as something that I'm called to as well? The answer is yes, because Jesus told you to, and he has all authority. And so, as Christian men and women and as a church... This commission and Jesus' authority behind it motivates everything that we do. We're certain that Jesus is risen. We're certain that we, like the apostles on that day, are commissioned. And we're certain that Jesus will make sure that his work is done through his people. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, says the risen Jesus. Verse 19. Go therefore. Verse 19 contains three instructions. A fourth instruction at the beginning of verse 20. And then a promise at the end of verse 20. First Jesus says, go. Now it's fascinating as you read through Matthew's gospel. You're going to notice a repeated refrain time and again where Jesus invitation to people is to come have you noticed that Matthew chapter 11 verse 28 is one of the most well known where Jesus says to people come to me all who labor and are heavy laden and I will give you rest come and now the resurrected Jesus His earthly ministry is coming to an end. He's about to ascend into heaven. He looks at his disciples and he says, and now having come, go. Go. I speak regularly of my love for missionary biographies. I hope that some of that has inspired you to read missionary biographies. Um, Steve Crana put me onto one the other day called Through Gates of Splendor. Are you familiar with that one? 1950s account of Jim Elliott and his two best friends, best and brightest in their college and university. You know, all-American athletes had the world at their fingertips. And graduating from university, they collectively said to one another, as Christian men, why would we entrust all of our eternity to Jesus Christ and not give him the 80 years that we have on this planet as well. And so they left everything behind. Everyone thought they were crazy. But they moved to the jungles in Ecuador to bring the gospel to a violent tribe who was known for murdering every white man that came. I'll let you read the rest of the story. Go! Or to the Golden Shore, the account of Adoniram Judson, who in the early 1800s loaded up his brand new wife and his coffin to take the gospel to Burma, to people who had never heard the name of Jesus. Or John G. Payton, the missionary to the New Hebrides Islands, an island of cannibals, who in the early 1800s took his wife to this one island in particular and set up shop and began trying to reach out to this tribe of cannibals with the gospel of Jesus. He went. Go. He went. I don't want to ruin any of these stories because I want you to read them. Steve Wishart lent me one the other day, the account of Eric Little, and you guys probably know him from Chariots of Fire. But he went on to be... A glorious missionary as well. And every time I read these missionary accounts, I find two things happen. The first thing that always happens is I'm deeply convicted. I wonder if I'm even a Christian. And then I find myself stirred and motivated and challenged, and I feel a big let's go for the gospel. You see, that's the Great Commission. These people and many more, they were moved to the core by this commission and this command from the risen Jesus. Jesus is alive. Go therefore. He holds all authority. The shores that you are about to land on already belong to Jesus. Jesus, the one to whom all authority belongs... He has many sheep there that are not yet of his fold. Go and preach the gospel. Go, therefore. Perhaps this message has struck a chord with you today or in the past when you've heard it. I know I've I've had coffee with some of you who are praying about and thinking about giving your life in missionary service, either short-term or long-term, and I praise God for that. There are others here this morning that hear accounts of these missionaries who give everything to go, and you think, well, I sure am glad someone's doing it. I'm really glad it's not me. Well, there's no wiggle room. You too. Go, therefore. Now, let's press into that for a moment. Does that mean that I want an empty church next Sunday because you've all boarded an Air Canada jet to Burma? No, that's not exactly what it means. If you look literally at the original Greek, when Jesus says, go therefore, the verb tense is is translated in English as go, exclamation point. But in the original Greek, it actually is more specifically, as you are going. Now think about that for a moment. It means that this commission is both for the grandiose missionary and for the everyday soccer mom. It's for those who will die for Jesus and for those who will merely live for him. As You are going about your life, is what Jesus says. As you go, therefore, when you are at work, when you are with your family, when you are carrying out your hobbies, see those moments through the Great Commission. You know, this morning you might be asking the question where is my mission field? To whom is Christ sending you? The answer is always, at every moment, right here, right now, and precisely them. As you are going, therefore, view it all as a mission field, view every moment as the empowering for the Great Commission. Second thing Jesus says in verse 18, or sorry, verse 19. Go therefore and make disciples. Well, there's nothing new or novel to disciple making. You know, there's a whole cottage industry of Christian books that want to come out with the secret to making disciples and all that stuff. It's a bunch of baloney. just simple meat and potatoes. If you want to make disciples, find people you can sit down with, read the Bible together, study it, pray together, and enjoy Christian fellowship together. You're going to disciple them. That's what Jesus did for his disciples. He hung out with them for a couple of years and wants us to do the same with others. That was one of the marks of Paul's ministry. Paul said to people, he said, follow me as I follow Christ. as discipling. Paul said, you've observed my manner of life. You see, the point is that making disciples is sometimes more caught than taught. To make a disciple means to relate to another person in such a way that they have a growing conviction that Jesus Christ is Lord and that all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to him. Make disciples of your particular identity group and demographic and make sure you stick with people that look like you? What does it say? Of all nations. Now, this is another thing that marks out Christianity as different from other world religions. Unlike other religions you're going to encounter, the gospel is not culturally bound. Because Jesus Christ doesn't claim to be Lord of one ethnic group, but of everything, and of all people. This is how Matthew ends his account of the earthly ministry of Jesus with this great commission. But if you're really going to understand what's going on here at the end of Matthew's account, you need to go back to the beginning of Matthew's account. Turn to Matthew chapter 1. Matthew chapter 1, verse 1. This will help us to properly understand what happens at the end of Matthew's account of the earthly life of Jesus. It says, The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ the son of David, the son of Abraham. And then it unfolds into a long genealogy. It is the family tree of the Messiah, of God's promised Savior and King. You see, Matthew, from this point forward, is going to undertake to pen the account of how God fulfills his promises to save his people and to rule and reign over a people that are blessed, a restored cosmos, and all through Jesus. Notice carefully that Matthew tells you that this Jesus is the son of David and the son of Abraham. Well, we just did a sermon series on the life of David, but how familiar are you with the account of Abraham. Turn to Genesis chapter 12. This is the calling of Abraham, of Abram, when God calls him out from his home. It says, Now the Lord said to Abram, Here's what Matthew wants you to know at the end of his gospel. Jesus Christ is the greater Abraham. All the blessings of God that were promised to Abraham for humanity will come through Abraham's greater son, Jesus. All the families of the earth will be blessed. And that's the Great Commission. The resurrected Jesus, the son of David, the son of Abraham, he stands before his disciples and he says, the promises of God in me, promised to Abraham, will be fulfilled by you as you go and make disciples of all nations. And so all the families of the earth will be blessed. Go. Make disciples of all nations. Baptize them in the name of the Father and of the Son. He's saying, initiate them into the Christian fellowship and family. Give them an outward sign that they have been born again. They have been born of the water and of spirit. Baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That's what we're going to do on June 11th down at Burlington Beach. If you've never been baptized or if you want to claim your baptism as your own, reach out to the church office. You can be baptized on June 11th. Last time I baptized someone on the beach, he was a large biker dude and it was, the water was really cold. And I put them under the water, and as I was about to lift them back up, my feet slipped out on algae, and both of us sunk to the bottom. (laughs) So maybe this time I'll wear aqua socks or something. Go, make disciples, all nations, baptize them, verse 20. And teach them to observe all that I have commanded. Now, this is the primary function and role of the pastor given to us in the New Testament. When you read the New Testament qualifications for pastors and elders, every single thing that the New Testament says that is a qualification for them, they are all matters of character. They're character traits of godliness. Husband of one wife, not given to anger, not given to too much wine, with the exception of one. He must have the ability to preach, to teach. So you're sitting there now and you're like, oh, that's great, RD. You've just given me my out. I'm not a teacher. I'm not a pastor. This commission isn't for me. In fact, every Christian man and woman is commissioned by the Lord Jesus Christ to teach. You're commanded to do so in your various spheres of influence. I want you to just start really small and consider your own home. If you are a husband or a father, it is your God-given task to lead your home in godliness, to initiate in godliness, to teach your wife and to teach your children the very commandments of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's your job. If you're a mom or a dad, God has entrusted children to you and your job is to teach them the very commandments of the Lord Jesus Christ, to teach them the gospel. Look, we all know that our world right now has gone insane and it can be a daunting task to send your little children out into the world, but sociologists for years have told us that from zero to 12, the greatest influence in a child's forming worldview is still their family of origin. Even if your kids go to a public school at that young age, they're going to come home and say, hey, mom, dad, this is what I heard. That isn't true, is it? And you're going to teach them the commandments of God. And so Christian man or woman, whatever state you find yourself in, you may not be a pastor, but give yourself to the gospel of Jesus so that you can teach it. Now I'm going to close with this. There's something to be said for um, teaching, and it's right here in this passage. You can't learn something until you're ready for it. You know what I mean by that? I'll, I'll give you just a quick anecdote. I, I've been golfing for a couple of years, and over my golfing journey, people have tried to give me advice, usually on the golf course, usually on my backswing. But I have one friend that I golf with all the time and he's been telling me for years, he's like, stop trying to putt the ball right into the hole. Imagine that there's a great big garbage can and you're just trying to get it close. Really good advice. You end up two-putting. It's pretty good. But for two years, I've just been like, that same advice has gone in one ear and out the other. Well for some reason, the other day when he and I were golfing, I was actually ready to hear it and it completely revolutionized my game. You can't learn something until you're ready to hear it. It doesn't matter how many times somebody tells you. Teaching theorists call this the horizon of proximal understanding. There are things beyond which you can't be expected to know because you have this horizon beyond which you can't see. That's true not only of golf and of math, But it's also true in our passage this morning. Look at it closely. Notice that the teaching of the commandments of the Lord Jesus come after being made a disciple. They come after being baptized and born again. The very commandments of Jesus Christ are good and wise. And if you try to follow them, apart from first bowing your knee to him as Lord, there are aspects of it that will make your life better. But it's just going to make you a better legalist because you don't know the Lord Jesus Christ. And so the sequence that the Lord sets out here in the Great Commission. First... Every person must bow their knee to Jesus Christ as Lord. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to him. When you do that, the Holy Spirit of God will cause you to be born again. And then as a converted man or woman, you will press into the very commandments of the Lord Jesus Christ. And they will seem lovely and beautiful to you. Look, Jesus has a lot to say about our world today. But if we go around just beating people up with Jesus' ethics, we're going to reject them. Because Jesus' ethics and Jesus' commandments do not fully make sense until you first have accepted him as Lord. Lord and given him the right to tell you what to do. It all begins with accepting that Jesus' commandments are good. And that starts with this imperative, bow your knee to him as Lord. When you do, and you begin to build your life on the commandments of the Lord, you'll find, like Matthew 7, that you're building your house on the rock and not on the sand. The storms will come, the wind will blow, the floods will rise, and your house will stand. Verse 20, Jesus says, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. And friend, maybe that's the simple words that you just needed to hear this morning. You're feeling alone and isolated. Jesus, before he was to ascend into heaven, said to his disciples, I'm with you. Jesus is alive. He's commanded the 11 on that day, and he's commanded you and me today. He's promised that when we carry out this commission in his name, he, the Lord of heaven and earth, will be with you. So boldly go from this place, bearing witness to him. Let everything about your life and your speech proclaim, I am a Christian man or woman. I know that Jesus Christ is alive. I have a risen Lord and King, and his name is Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this commission you've given to us through Jesus. I ask, Lord, that this morning this commission would move from something just that we read to the 11 disciples, but that we would know it for ourselves. We would affirm that you have all authority in heaven and earth, Lord Jesus Christ. That wherever we go, we would see that as our mission field. We would make disciples, baptizing, teaching, and confident that you are with us. We pray this in your name. Amen.